I've reminded you many times that the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, trace for us the spiritual journey of an individual from, from sin until, unto belief and unto glorification in Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, the New Testament confirms that this is so. The whole Old Testament was written that we might see in a vivid, demonstrated way what the New Testament declares to be true. And uh, the New Testament says that all these things about Israel happened as an example unto us, examples or types unto us, and were written down for our instruction because they're pictures of what we go through as we move along with, the, with Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Genesis is a picture of humanity in all its, in, in, in all its strident, clamant need. This is what we look like in the, as a result of the fall of man and the need in our life. And from Exodus to Deuteronomy, you have the way from Egypt to Canaan, or a picture of the way that the Christian will move from the slavery of sin to the freedom of victory in the midst of his enemies. And this is exactly the spiritual journey that God has called us to. So these books become uh, tremendously helpful for us. And I hope you learn early to read your New Testament in this way. If you read this as nothing but an ancient history of events uh, concerning people who have long since disappeared and dead, it'll be the dullest, bo most boring reading you could find. But if you read it as it is, as a picture of what's happening in your life, vividly displayed in terms of these people of old, you'll find it to be fascinating reading indeed. Now, the book of Exodus is a picture of God's delivering power. There we have the three great events in the life of Israel, the Passover in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and uh, the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. And these correspond with God's work with us. We came out of Egypt the night when, like the Israelites in the Passover, we saw the blood sprinkled for us. We realized that the angel of death had passed over us in the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, and in that place we were safe. We moved out across the Red Sea when we decided to openly uh, declare our redemption in Christ, and we cut off the ties that bound us with the world. We moved across the Red Sea. We came into the wilderness and heard the law of Moses when we began to learn, perhaps for the first time in our life, the kind of a God we have to deal with, a God of utter holiness, of complete, of complete righteousness, utterly consistent with himself, an utter realist. And then in the book of Leviticus, we learned uh, how to worship, what this kind of a God demanded. And how a God of, of such surpassing holiness could dwell with men and women like ourselves. The means by which God makes possible the intercourse with God and man. Now we come to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, you have set forth dramatically for us perhaps the hardest lesson that a Christian has to learn. And that is to trust God instead of his own reason. And here's where we struggle, isn't it? We think that what we want to do and the way we want to do it is the right way. 
And the hardest struggle we have, as these Israelites had, is to learn to believe that God knows what he's talking about. And that what he tells us is the truth. And to operate on that basis, despite what our friends and all those around us are telling us, is the right way. As the Proverbs puts it so graphically, there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And uh, the book of Numbers is a picture of, uh, of that experience in the believer. And you'll recognize, of course, it's the experience of Romans 7. The unhappy, defeated Christian, who's his own worst enemy, who's being disciplined by God because God as a father loves him, and yet he's experiencing in the midst of this discipline the fatherly love and care of God and protection from his enemies. Now that's the book of Numbers. It's a picture of people who have come out of Egypt but not yet gone into Canaan. They have had the faith to follow uh, God out of the bondage and slavery of sin but have not yet come into the fullness of liberty and rest in the Holy Spirit. Canaan is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Now this book falls into three divisions. The first division occupies the first ten chapters and is a picture of God's provision for guidance and for warfare. These are the two things that were needed in the march of Israel from Mount Sinai where the law was given and where this book begins until they came far up to the north across the great wilderness of Paran under the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And on the way they would need uh, guidance because this was a trackless wilderness and they would need protection for the wilderness was occupied by fierce hostile tribes that opposed them every time they turned around. And all of this you recognize is a picture of exactly what we need, isn't it? We need guidance because of the clever subtleties of the world in which we live and the ease by which we can be, uh, uh, we can be misled and uh, uh, taken off the track and uh, because of the enemies among whom we dwell. Those enemies right within us and all around about us that would try to defeat us if they could. Now there were two things in this section. It begins with the order of the camp. That is the arrangement of the tabernacle and the tribes on every side and a numbering of the armed men of Israel. And uh, all this is is typical of us, for us, of the need for defense against the enemies of God. And God has given all the strategy and all the provision that's necessary to meet every enemy that comes our way. This is what this book indicates from the beginning. And more than that, there's not only the order of the camp, that is, with the tabernacle in the midst, surrounded by the tribes of Israel, but there's also the cloud of fire, the cloud uh, the, over the camp by day and the pillar of fire by night, all of which the tabernacle and the cloud is a picture for us of the great truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have God in our midst, don't we? We live continually like Israel lived in the wilderness as an armed camp with God in the midst. That's the great truth. And he is able to direct us and to lead us through the witness of the Spirit 
Through the guidance of the word, we have the cloud and the fire as Israel was led. And we are to be obedient to that leading. Now, this is the potential that we need to get from the uh, law, the place of the law, the place of the knowledge of the holiness of God, unto the rest in the spirit that the land of Canaan represents. We have all that we need, just as Israel had all that they needed. But what happened? Well, the major part of this book, from chapter 11 through chapter 21, is a description of the murmuring and the rebelling of the people. The murmuring and rebellion of the people. It's a most remarkable fact, but easily demonstrated, and every pastor is fully aware of this, as I suppose every parent is true, is, is too, that rebellion and willful disobedience of, uh, toward God always begins with murmuring. Murmuring and critical complaining. And whenever you find yourself beginning to complain and to murmur, to uh, whisper, to carry on a little uh, uh, complaining campaign against the circumstances in which you find yourself, you know that you are on the threshold of rebellion, because it always begins there. And in this book, you'll notice there are three kinds of murmuring or complaining running throughout the length of, of this wilderness journey. There are three groups or three uh, levels of complaint. There was, first of all, the complaint of the people against the circumstances in which they found themselves. They complained about the manna. They complained about the lack of water. They complained about the meat. They complained about the wilderness itself. They were always murmuring. This was their favorite outdoor sport. And they, they worked at it day and night, it seems, as you read this account through. Nothing was right. Even the manna. The miraculous supply of God every day. I wonder if you know what that typifies in your life. Well, it typifies the Holy Spirit. Well, the manna, it said, was tasted like oil mixed with, uh, uh, in a thin wafer. It takes like oil and honey together. And oil and honey is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And on this they were to feed. Now, it was just a thin wafer. It wasn't enough to, to satisfy them, though it did sustain them. Because God never intended that they should live in the wilderness. He intended that they should get on over into the land of Canaan and begin to feed upon the rich food of the land. And all the wilderness journey was for was a supply of the Holy Spirit enough to get them on into the land. But uh, they got sick of manna. And who wouldn't for 40 years when they, it was only intended for a few days? Manna for lunch, manna for breakfast, manna for supper, nothing else but manna, 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 until finally they began to com uh, they, they complain and rebel. But it wasn't God's fault. They were never intended to have it that long. Manna was never intended to satisfy. It was merely a temporary provision until they could get into the fullness of the land, just as God never intends you to live on the experience of the meager uh, contact with the Holy Spirit that you get in a, in a defeated Christian experience. 
It's to go on into the land. That's where you find satisfaction. They complained about the lack of meat, and God gave them meat for a month until it ran out their nostrils. And uh, still they weren't satisfied. They complained about that then. And so on it went. The mark of a degenerating Christian experience is always that of murmuring. And they thought of Egypt. All they could think of was what, as they put it, the meat, the, the melons and the cucumbers and the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. Imagine dreaming of that kind of food. But that's what Egypt meant to them. And they had no thought of Canaan because they had, they had no knowledge of it. All they'd heard was sermons about Canaan. They had no experience of that. All they could remember was the world out of which they'd come. As uh, Major Ian Thomas puts it in his little book, what is what are these things, anyway, pictures of? Uh, a cucumber, he says, is 12 inches of indigestion. And leeks and onions and garlic have a very peculiar property about them. They're one kind of food that you eat in private, but everybody knows about it in public. And this is a picture of the world. Now, this murmuring against the circumstances in which they found themselves was met by the judgment of God in three forms, fire, plague, and poison serpents, who moved among them when they began to complain about their circumstances. And I wonder if you can see in each of those a picture of the inevitable results that occur to a whining, complaining, murmuring Christian. For when we begin to complain about where God has put us and the kind of people he's put us among and the kind of food we have to live on and all the circumstances of our life, nothing pleases us, we discover that we loose in our own life the fire of gossip and scandal and slander, the plague of anxiety and nervous tension that takes its daily toll of our life and the poison of envy and jealousy. And these things are inevitable. Now, not only did the uh, people in, uh, in the, uh, of the Israelites murmur against their circumstances, but there were several times when they murmured against the blessing of God. Imagine that. They came up at last to the end of the, uh, to the edge of the land of Canaan, standing on the very borderline at Kadesh Barnea. And there God said to them, now go forward. Possess the land. They had sent out the spies and had learned that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. The spies had brought back the, the grapes that, that was in a bunch of grapes that was so large that they had to carry them on a stick between the shoulders of two men. It was so heavy. And they knew that it was a land full of cities in which giants dwelt. And because of the giants, they were afraid to go up. They thought that giants were greater than God. And so they refused to go on into blessing. They resisted God's efforts to bless them. They were glad to get out of Egypt, but they were unwilling to go on into Canaan. And this is why they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. The inevitable judgment to them was that if they would not go into blessing, they must experience the full results of a failure to move on in God's program. And right here is where many, many Christians are living today. 
right square in the middle of a howling wilderness, living on the, uh, on the minimum supply of the Holy Spirit, enough to keep them going. That's all. And spending their life in complaining, unending murmuring against their circumstances and still unwilling to move on into the land that God has fully provided for them. This is the problem with so many. In the wilderness, they were, you can be sustained, but you'll never be satisfied. Never. And that's why the wilderness experience is always marked with a complaining heart by, and, uh, and an unending criticism of something or someone. And it never ended, you'll notice in this book, until a new generation was ready to enter the land. God said, not one of you, 20 years, uh, older than 20 years, who uh, went back at Kenish Barnea will ever enter this land except two men. And those two men, everyone knows their name, Caleb and Joshua, men of faith, who went on. But it isn't until there's a new beginning made in our life, a time when we come to the end of ourselves, and almost as though we began again in Christian life, that we can ever go on after we've resisted the work of the Spirit in catching us into the, taking us into the land. This is why so many Christians never seem to come to victory till they come to a crisis experience, a new beginning. And then they enter into the land. They had one other occupation, by the way, in the wilderness besides murmuring, and that was burying. For uh, the mark of the wilderness is, is that it's a land of death. Did you ever think of how many Israelites died in those 40 years in the wilderness? This book begins with a census of Israel, and it, uh, it totals up to 603,000 or more men alone, men able to go out to warfare, who are 20 years of age or older, 603,000. Now, most of those men were married. That meant that many number of women as well, let alone all the children that was in that camp. So many have estimated the children of Israel at that time to have been well over almost two million or more people. And in the wilderness, in the space of 40 years, one million two hundred thousand of them died. So that there was uh, nothing but a great big funeral going on all the time. And the wilderness was nothing but one great big graveyard. No wonder they had to move so often. For they were continually on the move. And you can imagine why. As literally scores and scores of people were dying every day through that 40-year time. What a picture of what Romans says, that the mind of the flesh is death. All right. Then there's another form of, of murmuring here, and it's murmuring against authority. They murmured against circumstances, they murmured against God's effort to bless them, and they murmured against the authority of God, expressed through Moses and Aaron. They said, all the people are holy. Why, Moses and Aaron, why do you take on any, uh, any, any authority? Why do you put on airs as though you're better than we are? All of the people of God are holy in their own eyes. And they judged themselves by their own standards, and thus they rebelled against the properly constituted authority of God in their midst. 
They resisted with all their strength the suggestion that they should be anything more than they already were. And have you noticed that this is another characteristic of the defeated Christian? He always thinks he's holy enough, that he's as holy as he needs to be. And he resents anyone else who seems to appear, at least, to be ahead of him or to exercise any authority, and he resists every attempt uh, to suggest to him that he ought to be more than he is. And that's what these did. And God met this with the severest judgment of all. There's that dramatic, moving account of the rebellion of Korah and Abiram there, when they openly challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron. And God divided the camp in half, and he said, Moses and Aaron, you stand over here, and Korah and your group, you stand over here, and the people stand there. And then he said, you stand back, I'm going to show who is, who is in authority here. And Moses, he, he led Moses to say, if these people live out their lives as normal, ordinary men, then it's a sign that God is not with me. But he said, if God does something absolutely new and the ground should open up underneath them and swallow them alive, it's an indication that God is with me. And as he said the words, the ground opened up underneath Korah and Abiram and all their families, and they went down, it says, alive into the pit. And God established his authority through Moses and stopped the murmuring of Israel by this remarkable judgment. When we rebel against authority, God judges with the utmost severity. Now, all of this, interestingly enough, all the murmuring went on despite the severity of this judgment until two things took place. And God stopped the murmuring with two remarkable signs. One was in connection with the rebellion of Korah and Abiram, and the other was in connection with the, the serpents that came and bit them at the time that they complained about the food. And you remember what he did with, with, uh, to stop the rebellion of Korah and Abiram? All the leaders of the twelve tribes took rods and put them before the Lord, Aaron's rod included among them. And when they came back in the morning, they found that Aaron's rod had grown branches, and the branches had blossomed, and the blossoms had grown fruit, and there were almonds hanging on the blossoms, on the branches, all taking place overnight. And of the twelve rods, only Aaron's blossomed. A picture, of course, of resurrection life. God is saying by that, the only ones who have right to bear authority are those who walk in the fullness and the power of resurrection life. And then when they murmured about the food, he sent serpents among them. And you remember how in John 3 we have our Lord's reference to this story. Moses cured it by lifting up a brazen serpent on a pole, and all who looked at that were healed. And by that God was saying the only cure for any kind of sin, even sin in the Christian, is a look again at the cross and the way it utterly repudiates all human endeavor and all human worthless worthiness and puts Christian living solely on the basis of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the book of Numbers. The latter part of the book, the third section, is a remarkable record of protection despite failure. 
chapters 21 through 36. And here you find victory over the enemies around, the outward forces of King Arad and Sihon and Og, king of Bashan, and the attempts of Balaam, the false prophet, to try to undermine the people of God, which resulted only in greater blessing. And all of it is simply saying to us as in the most vivid language God can employ, that though we are disobedient, though we are rebellious, though we turn, we refuse to go into blessing, though we wander in a wilderness of defeat and despair and barrenness for year after year after year, nevertheless the Holy Spirit will never leave us. And even in the midst of our weakness, he grants us protection from our enemies and deliverance from complete defeat. What a remarkable book. But what a picture. What a picture of what Paul says, uh, sums up in that poignant phrase, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And that's why we need to move on to Deuteronomy, where we get the, the second law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that will be our study next time. Shall we bow together in prayer? Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you, Father, for these graphic things, not only written down for us, but lived out in the lives of men and women like ourselves. And for this marvelous book, so, so tremendously preserved, so skillfully recorded, by which we may learn the truth if we'll only give ourselves to it in discovering what life is all about. Teach us, Lord, to step out of the barren wilderness of our own frustrated efforts and begin to rest upon the glorious provision of the indwelling life of our Lord Jesus to enter, to, to get out of the wilderness into the land, to give up the frustration of a, of an imitation Christian life and begin to enjoy the fullness of a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this provision in Jesus' name. Amen.